domestic migrant workers is a huge feature of the Chinese labor market in general. And any state-sponsored movement of a batch of Uyghur workers pursuant to a poverty alleviation initiative um, would presumptively be a basis for listing and a basis yeah. upon which an entity could no longer exist in a U.S.-bound supply chain. So it's going to be very interesting to see how other industries um, react and respond as as the enforcement builds. All right. The Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act Congress's answer to human rights allegations in Xinjiang is coming into effect June 21. To talk about the implications, today I have on the podcast John Foote, partner and head of the customs practice at Kelly, Dry, and Warren. John, welcome to China Talk. Thanks, Jordan. Glad to be here with you. The reason I'm particularly focused on the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is because when people talk about decoupling and what's driving it, and often you have... Um, uh, you know, some folks poking, uh, looking at sort of import and export numbers and saying, look, they're kind of constant, like there hasn't been a big change. But my sort of conviction from the start of the Biden administration was that they were very interested and focused, focused on taking uh, the human rights dimension of this um, relationship more seriously. And it always sort of occurred to me that if decoupling, if like actual big numbers of trade related decoupling would happen, that it would happen in the context of human rights concerns. And um, as you as you alluded to, John, the idea of these forced labor transfers, where it's not just Xinjiang anymore, it's sort of folks being put on buses and sent to factories all over the country. Once you're sort of expanding the scope and the remit that the U.S. government is looking at to um, to impact not just factories in Xinjiang, but potentially uh, uh, manufacturing locations all across the country, then you're looking at a potential where you are, you end up potentially uh, having this escalate towards numbers that do end up really impacting um, uh, uh, trade flows at a significant level. In that context of this relatively unsung bill and these you know twenty five billion dollars of people in the customs department giving the Biden administration another flip to potentially switch and escalate and and sort of raise some of these um. Uh, uh, stakes and 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 dial up some of the forces which are pushing towards a broader economic decoupling. That in particular will be really interesting to see. I, I think that's a great point and 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 very well said. And I agree. I mean, I think the reason that I bring this up as a as a, a point of contrast to the Section three hundred one tariffs is because that was sort of the most um, the most public and demonstrative that you could possibly be. In initiating a trade war between two two mega powers, right? I mean, the the numbers were so large, and you know every every press platform was covering this, you know, breathlessly. Every every single individual development. It is not difficult to imagine a scenario where every Chinese entity that is linked to one of these social programs of concern, you know, or a significant percentage of them getting listed and it being massively disruptive to US bound supply chains and and that I think is why I consider this sort of a sleeper um you know front in the US China trade war is because if if in fact you see hundreds and thousands of chinese entities that are linkable to these to these issues end up getting listed and and they are being hit you know deeper in the supply chain it could create massive massive um headaches for companies that import goods from china to effectively replace individual entities on the you know at the time that they become listed, um, huge commercial disruption, huge import disruption, 
And, you know, yeah, this is, you're right. This is getting covered, you know, a couple of articles here and there. I'd say the importing community is pretty focused on this and, and, and pretty apprehensive about it. But in terms of the, the broader, um, you know, focus on, on U.S. China issues, this is definitely an under um, emphasized point of potential disruption. So pre-2016, what did the U.S. government do to stop forced labor goods from coming into the country? Really, the, the U.S. Um, began enforcing what I would characterize as the modern era of forced labor enforcement as a trade matter in 2016. So the U.S. has had a ban on the importation of goods, um, any, any goods that were made wholly or in part with forced labor since 1930. And there were predecessor provisions that went back into the 1890s. But for most of that history, there was a what, what is characterized as a loophole in that in that ban. And the loophole said that if you imported something that was not made in sufficient quantities in the United States to satisfy the consumptive demand in the U.S., then the ban did not apply. So, so it was sort of a, a an exception that swallowed the rule because by definition, virtually everything that is imported is imported because there is insufficient domestic production to satisfy demand within the United States. So the, the law did have a very... Uh, limited application and periods of enforcement. Um, there were periods of enforcement in the 1980s uh, focused on Soviet gulag system. There were periods of enforcement in the early 1990s um, focused somewhat on Chinese prison labor. But really since about 1994, um, there had been no enforcement of this forced labor import ban until 2016 when Congress removed the the consumptive demand clause from the forced labor import ban. And since then, the U.S. has been the only jurisdiction in the world um, that enforces a prohibition on trade in um, you know, slave-made goods, goods made with forced labor. So, John, let's do a little history detour for a second. Have you spent a lot of time reading what was going on in the 1890s and the uh, FDR administration? Why did this <laughs> Why did this become a thing in the first place? Yeah, uh, so it, it actually is. I, I actually have done a fair amount of um, historic research on this question, just because um, everyone wanted to know where this law came about or how this law came about, what what, what caused it. Um, and the the actually the original um, um, industry that lobbied for um, a ban on goods made with forced labor um, were hat makers, um, hat makers from Brooklyn, haberdashers. And they, um, <laughs> I, I'm not making this up. And they, um, they were lobbying because they were faced with competition from hats made in Eastern Europe in prisons, and they just couldn't compete on the prices. Um, and apparently, there was also some prison making industries even in New York State at the time. And the if you the legislative history, um, the congressional record actually has these exchanges where. The lobbyists from this hat making industry came in and said, look, we got some relief on this issue in Albany, but we need help with regards to the hats that are coming in from Eastern Europe. And so a provision was introduced to ban the importation of goods made with with forced or prison labor. And that was that was the genesis of the of the ban. So it was a commercial concern, um, you know, rooted in the fact that it's difficult to compete when someone can produce a good without having to pay, you know, fairly for the labor that is used to produce it. 
there's a bit of like a Baptist and bootleggers dynamic to the uh, to the initial passage, it seems. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that it, it was definitely commercial uh, and competition driven concerns. Um, but certainly by the time that the the Tariff Act of 1930 was passed, including this provision, which uh, extended from just prison labor to include forced labor, it certainly was influenced by the labor rights movement um, and, and the legislative changes that that were precipitated from the labor rights movement in the 1930s as well. And it was certainly in the trade title and, and in the Tariff Act, um, unquestionably, but the inclusion of language about forced labor, including forced child labor, um, certainly has some lineage to to the labor rights activists of that era. So, so you know, who would have thought that the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, which everyone learned in their AP US class as like the thing that, um, you know, Hoover thought was going to save the American economy only to tank it and, you know, kick off global, uh, you know, a global tariff war, in fact, is coming back uh, into action in the late Obama administration. So, so maybe let's fast forward, you know, 70, 80 plus years. John, what was the sort of discussion and dynamic that led to the reform, um, uh, the reform of Section 307? Yeah, um, so that's a great question. And, and I think that the, um, th- th- this would be worthy of, of someone sort of re-piecing this together and, and all the different um, legislative efforts that, that were afoot to try and remove this, uh, this consumptive demand loophole. But the, the story, as I was told at one point in time, was that this was a cause um, of, uh, of Bernie Sanders uh, championing for a number of years um, and that it was subsequently picked up by um, Senator Sherrod Brown. And um, eventually it was just slipped into an omnibus trade bill in 2016, um, the Trade Facilitation and Trade Enforcement Act of 2016, also known as TIFTIA. And um, the the provision that in that bill simply removed the consumptive demand clause. It removed a, just, you know, between two commas out of the out of Section 307 and left behind a blanket ban on all goods produced wholly or in part with forced labor. And I, I think what's really significant about Section 307 is that phrase wholly or in part, because that little phrase, specifically the the the, the language or in part, serves to do something that essentially no other trade law does. And that is to bring the entirety of a supply chain, all of a supply chain into scope and within the focus of a border enforced trade law. Historically, trade laws primarily focus on the actual finished goods that are being uh, exchanged across that particular border. But by defining, by using this phrase wholly or in part, and in particular how customs has interpreted that phrase wholly or in part to mean any component of a finished good or any material that is used to produce a component within a finished good, um, going all the way back to ground, what this has done is it has served to make the entirety of a supply chain brought within the focus of the movement of a piece of finished merchandise across an international border. And that is completely novel in the context of global trade regulation. Um, it just was not a not a part of the landscape before that. And so I think if you ask the 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 uh, drafters of Tiftia and the folks who revised by removing that consumptive demand loophole, they would certainly say, 
that it was, you know, uh, out of concern for labor rights, for human rights, for worker rights. But I think that there that um, a lot of folks, I would say, a lot of folks were surprised by the scope and scale of the impact of simply removing this particular clause from the bill or from the yeah. from the law. Yeah. Shout out to the congressional staffer who pulled one over industry, perhaps, um, because um, uh, and, and also gave John a lot more work to do, uh, which is, I guess, is good and bad signs. But um, uh, let's let's talk about the sort of 2016 to pre UFLPA times. How did this um, this new regulatory tool end up uh, starting to be applied in the China context in particular? So. The uh, so customs um, is the agency that is charged with enforcing laws, of course, at the border, including laws governing um, governing international trade. And customs has um, within its regulations um, a very few sections that were dedicated to the forced labor import ban. So, notwithstanding that it had not been enforced at all really since the mid 1990s, and only and only really sparingly prior to that. Um, there was a regulatory mechanism in place, and the regulatory mechanism um, was actually crafted in the Kennedy administration and has never been updated since. And um, it was it was designed to function in such a way um, as to be able to target goods that were made by um, a, a particular producer, um, like a finished producer that was perhaps using forced or prison labor. And so this mechanism, what it does is it allows customs to identify a, a class or kind of merchandise. And it really is, it really contemplates that the class or kind of merchandise is merchandise made by a particular type of producer. Um, and, and then what customs will do is it will issue an order on that class or kind of merchandise produced by, for example, a particular factory. And it will say this type of merchandise from this factory um, shall be detained at the border. And that issuance of that order is, is known as a withhold release order. It's actually a memo to the port directors from headquarters saying, you shall withhold release of this merchandise. It shall not be admitted um, into the United States unless the importer can prove that the goods were not made wholly or in part with forced labor. There's a very low threshold. Yeah, it's a difficult, it's a difficult burden of proof. That's right. Uh, and and correspondingly, it's a relatively low burden of proof for the imposition of one of these orders. So a withhold release order is also referred to as a WRO. And when Customs has issued WROs historically, particularly in the 2016 to um, early 2021 era, for the most part, it would issue WROs against individual manufacturers. Um, you know, XYZ company in China identified for producing, you know, products A, B, and C uh, with forced labor or with prison labor or something. And then those products by that producer would be detained at the border. And if you were importing goods from that producer, you would have the opportunity to try and prove that your goods were not made with forced labor and try and get customs to agree that your proof was sufficient and then allow the goods to be released. That is the main mechanism that is used. There are a few other sort of wrinkles to it, but but in in a nutshell, that's that's the mechanism from the regulations, um, and that is what gurgled back to life in 2016. Uh, was Customs started issuing WROs, most of them targeting individual factories, most but not all. Gotcha. So so let's get into the guts of 
the WRO sausage making process. So how did this, you know, I, I remember there's a lot of uh, pressure from activists around um, in the in the early days when when, um, uh, you know, in, say, 2017, 2018, when it was the Trump administration was getting criticized for not necessarily being as aggressive as the law um, would potentially let them in um, enlisting more um, more firms. So, you know, w- what's the sort of origin story of a WRO um, and and how has that uh changed over the past five years? Yeah. So customs will um, consider allegations from basically all corners um, in deciding whether or not to issue a WRO. I think they've opened up a formal portal, quote unquote, uh, you know, an email address where allegations can be submitted. And um, customs will uh, set, you know, the, the, the regulations provide that a WRO may be issued upon evidence which reasonably but not conclusively indicates that um, some goods have been made with forced labor. Um, so reasonably but not conclusively is a relatively low standard. Let's stay on the standard for a second, uh, John. How does this compare with, you know, export controls or sort of CFIUS findings or other things which can kind of get in the way of U.S.-China trade? The, the, the reasonably but not conclusively standard for the issuance of a WRO is a very, very low bar. In theory, there is a lot of merchandise that comes into the United States that would be vulnerable to an accusation that it, it reasonably but not conclusively was made with forced labor. Customs would say that they have, in practice, tried to maintain a higher standard internally um, for the for the issuance of a WRO. Um, but upon the issuance of a WRO, Customs does not provide any information about the um, evidence that it considered, the facts that it found, um, or, or anything about any determinations that were made regarding the existence of forced labor. Um, generally speaking, the most they've accompanied that type of determination with is a press release, which will um, you know, recite the varieties of um, labor violations or perhaps the varieties of indicators of forced labor that they found but without providing any details or any sort of information. So, you know, if you're an importer that is importing goods that end up being affected by a WRO, or um, certainly if you're a company that is named in the WRO, sort of understanding the basis upon which the allegations were made, um, that has been extremely difficult. And Customs has simply regarded it not as something that it is obligated to disclose to to any parties. Yeah, you've seen um, uh, the sort of evidence base is really tricky, and you've seen a number of firms um, sort of wave their hands and be like, hey, no, we're the good guys here. Like, you caught someone else. Please, like, reconsider this because this is, like, killing our business. And then, um, you know, silence out of the out of the, uh, out of of the the customs department. Though I think once or twice they've, like, ended up getting, allowing firms to get off the blacklist, it seems. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so on very few occasions, they have rescinded um, WROs that were issued. Uh, um, but th- those those instances have been few and far between. And I guess this is as good a point as any to describe some of the evolution, which is sure. that um, it, in the WROs, so the earliest WROs of this modern era, 2016, 2017, really targeted individual companies by name. Um, but then beginning in 2017, 2018, Customs started to explore the possibility of identifying 
um, whole categories of merchandise, uh, whole commodities, for example. Um, and they did this in in small steps first. So they targeted um, cotton and products containing cotton produced in Turkmenistan. And so this was a totally different variety of WRO, right? Rather than naming you know XYZ factory in China, which is relatively easy to spot goods that come from that factory because that's actually part of every customs declaration. If you're an importer, you have to identify who the manufacturer was. So if you identify the manufacturer as XYZ company and it's named in the WRO, well, that's a real that's a slam dunk from a customs standpoint in terms of, well, this is the shipment I'm going to be detaining then. Cotton from Turkmenistan is a whole a whole different animal, right? Because no one um, is declaring the origin of the cotton fiber of anything that's being imported into the United States. It's just not a requirement to to trade. Nobody has to provide that information. So, by by Im- imposing a WRO on cotton from Turkmenistan, in theory, any product that contains cotton from Turkmenistan would be subject to detention by CBP. But we don't know which shipments customs sort of thinks contain cotton from Turkmenistan, and therefore we don't know which shipments it was detaining, how it was going about that process. And that's where I would say the WRO, the use of the WRO mechanism started to fall apart a little bit because it was never designed to capture sort of whole categories of merchandise or whole, you know, productions of, uh, production of a whole raw commodity that would exist deep in the supply chain um, it just wasn't designed for that at all. And customs doesn't have the ability to identify where Turkmenistan cotton is. Therefore, it can't really effectively lawfully enforce the WRO under the law, under the regulations that that create the WRO. Um, and that was all sort of a, a j- just an academic observation for a while. There were a couple similar types of WROs that were issued. Um, but then we had the 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 mega event of of early 2021 right before the Trump administration left they issued a WRO targeting a raw material specifically cotton produced in Xinjiang so that happened to just be um, 17% of the global supply of cotton overnight went from being perfectly admissible into the United States to subject to detention at the border um, you know, a fifth of the global supply of cotton. So customs doesn't know where that cotton is. A lot of importers had no idea where that cotton was or could have been in their supply chain. But customs took the view that we are authorized to issue this WRO. We've done it before. We've issued WROs against, you know, categories of merchandise from entire countries or from entire regions. And why not? There's a lot of forced labor in Xinjiang. We've got concerns about cotton. It meets our relatively low standard. We're going to issue the WRO and the WRO on cotton and products containing cotton from Xinjiang was born. So what was the impact of the WRO on cotton, John? Yeah. So, I mean, it was certainly a massive disruption within um, within global supply chains for companies that um, trade in goods that contain cotton um, because any company that was importing a cotton-made or a cotton containing good into the United States, um, whether that finished good came into, the, regardless of what jurisdiction it came in from, right? So cotton gets harvested in Xinjiang and then it gets spun into yarn, which gets woven into fabric, which then gets cut and sewn into various types of finished articles um, and imported into the United States. And 
all of those steps can happen in different jurisdictions. And in fact, modern global supply chains being what they are, they are manufactured in all different jurisdictions. So Xinjiang origin cotton may be coming into the United States from every corner of the earth. And in fact, no doubt it is. What customs started doing was it began what it called, um, and, and to its credit, it took what, what it called a, a surgical type approach, um, a limited surgical approach. So it started by trying to figure out, and I, I think it was trying to assess where Xinjiang cotton may have been entering in the United States. But as a practical matter, they began by detaining shipments um, produced by Chinese manufacturers that contain cotton. There have been reports of some additional detentions targeting um, cotton-containing goods that were made in other countries, such as Vietnam. But again, Customs says all of what we know about that has been sort of collected by by rumor and anecdote. You know, working working in this space and 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 within the industry, Customs does not disclose how it goes about deciding which shipments it thinks contain Xinjiang origin cotton um, or or what sort of factors go into the question of which shipments get detained and then kick off the, you know, flipped burden of proof obligation to disprove the presence of uh, forced labor within a supply chain. So I think a lot of companies have been, um, have been, have had a real difficult time figuring out what to do in response to this. Um, because if customs were to stop a con- cotton containing shipment and say, hey, prove there's no Xinjiang origin cotton here, Technically, that's actually not a a lawful use of the WRO mechanism. Customs cannot use a WRO to stop goods and figure out whether a shipment contains the merchandise that is referenced in the WRO. That's not a lawful use of a WRO. A WRO authorizes the detention of merchandise that is named in the WRO, which means customs has to know where the Xinjiang origin cotton is before it stops the merchandise. Um, and if it doesn't, then arguably that's an unlawful detention, an unlawful use of the WRO. I think a lot of companies have tried to work with their suppliers to begin the process of tracing um, cotton through the supply chain, but it has put a, a, a huge premium on the um, the ability, like the true ability to trace cotton through a supply chain um, traceability has gone, you know, went uh, after after the uh, imposition of the Xinjiang cotton WRO. It went from basically being something that was useful for supporting CSR or ESG type claims that a company might make to being really a necessity if you wanted to be in a position to 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 have confidence that you could defeat a detention or stop a detention under the cotton WRO. You either could trace your cotton and the origin, the provenance of your cotton from harvest and the jurisdiction of harvest through to your finished goods and demonstrate to the satisfaction of customs that you can, in fact, trace the cotton at each individual step such that by the time you have a finished good, you you can demonstrate the origin of the cotton fiber or you can't. And if you can't, you're, you're, you're subject to detention, you're subject to uh, you know, having to re-export the goods or possibly even surrender control of the goods at the at the border. So longtime China Talk readers will know that about a year and a half ago, I wrote a piece sort of exploring the dynamics of uh, enforcement around this. And the two things that I thought were really surprising, which was one, that 
the worst thing that could happen to you if customs uh, detains one of your things is you just like lose your shipment of socks or whatever. Um, there's no fine. There's no like longer outstanding penalty. And the amount of like the, the dollars and, you know, full-time equivalents that end up supporting this uh, forced labor division within customs was like shockingly small, like maybe like eight or 10 folks. Um, it seems like one of those two things, thanks to the uh, UFLPA is about to change. Yeah. So a, a couple comments. Um, one, I would say that the primary risk in a detention uh, in a WRO enforcement scenario, scenario is that your goods are subject to detention. Individual shipments are subject to detention. But individual detentions that cannot be resolved to the satisfaction of customs um, certainly raise the stakes with respect to other shipments. Um, and it would not be hard for uh, an individual WRO, an individual detained shipment under a WRO to lead to a much greater supply chain disruption. And certainly an importer that continues to import goods that have uh, that are the same as goods that were detained and, and that could not be proven, you know, Xinjiang cotton free sufficient to obtain a, a release um, would be running the risk of of potentially um, you know, civil enforcement in the form of uh, fines or penalties. That's encouraging. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. Cause, cause you know, you basically the only stories you get are like, you know, it was a few, maybe a year ago now, like Uniqlo, like one shipment container, um, was, was, um, was detained and like one shipment container from Uniqlo is not going to have a big impact on their bottom line. But if it ends up being a sort of whole swath of, um, you know, if if that is just the tip of the iceberg, that makes a that makes a bit more sense. Sure, and and keep in mind that customs penalty actions are not public, um, so customs may very well have undertaken a number of penalty actions. We wouldn't know about that. Um, and I think a lot of importers, if they were facing a penalty from customs on the basis of a forced labor violation would be inclined to resolve that administratively before any any suit was filed at the Court of International Trade. So I don't think that we would necessarily know um, if there were a lot of penalty actions being pursued, but there certainly sure. is a potential basis for it. In terms of the uh, of the funding, the funding has has bumped uh, for two different reasons. One, there was uh, an, an earmark uh, an allocation of funding just to CBP's Office of Trade for purposes of forced labor enforcement um, of about $10 million um, for the current fiscal year. And, um, and then there was a separate allocation of money for enforcing the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, the UFLPA. And that allocation is $27.5 million to the Office of Trade just for the enforcement of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. So that, I mean, it's, sometimes it's hard to put numbers, uh, you know, government spending numbers into into perspective because you know a, a few million dollars for an office here doesn't sound like that much compared to billions or, or trillions um, obviously for other purposes but it does put this issue far and away as the most important um, individually funded um, trade enforcement um, topic I think for the office of trade uh, within customs. This amount of money is equivalent to about um, two thirds of the entire budget of the Office of Forward Asset Control, OFAC, which is um, the, the office at the Department of Treasury that is responsible for enforcing US sanctions. So two thirds of that entire budget for enforcing all US sanctions programs um, at the Department of Treasury is going to customs just for the purpose of 
UFLPA enforcement just for just for the Uyghur issue alone. So that doesn't include the cotton WRO, which is what we were mostly just focused on. It's entirely dedicated just to this issue of Uyghur forced labor enforcement. So huge bump in enforcement funding. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of of downstream results flowing from that. So aside from aside from having a lot of people to enforce this bill, what's actually in the bill? So the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act functions as sort of an add-on. You can think of it as like an add-on module to Section 307. And basically what, um, what Congress did in the UFLPA is it said, okay, we recognize that one of the challenging parts of forced labor enforcement is deciding where exactly forced labor is happening, where exactly it's occurring. They said, we're going to make that easy for you. Okay, we're going to put our finger on the scale and just tell you that for purposes of U.S. law, we consider the human rights violations targeting Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in Xinjiang and through the different uh, social programs of concern um, out through, you know, around China. We, we stipulate that all of this is forced labor for purposes of U.S. law. And so the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act establishes a presumption that any good produced in Xinjiang or any good produced wholly or in part by an entity that comes to be listed under the law for the entity's participation in those social programs of concern, those goods are made with forced labor. And those goods will therefore be subject to detention under Section 307 under the forced labor import ban. Um, So it was a really significant and very powerful determination and in some respects, it was a determination that only Congress could make um, because the, the assessment of whether these particular social programs, you know, constitutes forced labor. I mean, it is it, it is certainly a political variety of determination, which is to say, uh, you know, China views these programs very differently. It does not view this as forced labor at all. It views this as, sure. um, you know, uh, social programs that have any number of different um, types of domestic defensibility to them. And the U.S., of course, has a clearly different view, views that this is unquestionably forced labor. And it being a political determination, therefore, we're different. Um, countries have different views of the of the program. It was essential in some respects that the U.S. weigh in if it wanted to, to take seriously the issue of supply chain links to this issue. So now, John, coming back to the the downstream impacts of this law, uh, which is about to come into effect in, in, in mid-June. What are going to be some of the implications? Yeah. So the 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 Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act was was enacted in December of 2021, and it had a six-month uh, lead time during which um, the U.S. government um, would be formulating a strategy to ensure the effective enforcement of this law. And so pursuant to that strategy, um, there was a public uh, hearing and there was a, a notice and comment period where, where comments were, were received. Um, but the U.S. government will be producing a strategy for the enforcement of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. That strategy is actually due to be published the same day that the enforcement itself goes live, that that presumption of goods made in Xinjiang or made with by, by a listed entity takes effect, and that is June, June 21st. So between, you know, now we're, we're recording this, I think it's just under six weeks uh, before the, uh, the the date of launch, you know, from here until launch, I would say what we are expecting is we are still expecting that that strategy to be published. 
The strategy has a number of different elements and components to it, but it will be really, uh, I think, a very significant document in terms of providing us um, guidance on on how this uh, how this law is going to be enforced. The strategy will also include lists of entities. Um, and 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 those are the lists that I referred to when I said the presumption applies to goods made in Xinjiang or by an entity on the list. The strategy actually includes those lists of Chinese entities that are identified as having some form of of linkage to a social program of concern in China. So in that respect, the the strategy document is is not just a strategy document. It's actually like a legally binding, you know document in its own right, um, because the entities that come to be listed will be de facto, um, you know, prohibited, de facto blacklisted from existing anywhere in a supply chain um, that is destined for the United States. Um, so, John, what are some of the other implications of how this is all going to play out? Look, I, I think that it's it's going to be very interesting to see how many entities end up getting listed under the UFLPA. And I think that that's really going to determine in a significant um, extent the impact of the UFLPA in terms of how far reaching it is and, and how consequential it is. One would think that with a funding level like what has been allocated, the expectations of Congress are that this is going to be a very significant, uh, a significant disruption in the context of US-China trade. That listing process of identifying Chinese entities that are linked to the social programs of concern has the potential to be um, almost a whole a whole other front in the whole US-China trade um, relationship or, or I, I could say conflict. You know, when, when Trump it, uh, it, it administered the Section 301 tariffs and imposed you know, 25% tariffs on $50 billion worth of goods, that was an overnight, um, you know, sensation, and everybody was aware of the impact of this, of this action, and particularly as it progressed into additional lists and additional impositions of tariffs. Um, this is a little bit more of a sleeper in that um, we don't know exactly the full extent. We don't know how many entities are going to be listed, and we don't know what the full extent is going to be. But I would say that there are, there are certainly hundreds and probably thousands of Chinese entities that are potentially linkable to one of the social programs of concern and would fit within the categories of the UFLPA such that those entities could end up being listed. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how many companies end up getting listed and exactly how dramatic that is. But you know, if you think of a supply chain as sort of a network or like a family tree, right, running backwards, where at each sequential step, Going further back, you have more and more entities involved at that at that same generation. So every importing company with a supply chain that runs through China has some sort of, you know, Chinese family tree there of suppliers. The listing process has the effect of blacking out and making it illegal for any individual listed Chinese entity to continue to remain a part of that family tree supply chain towards the United States. Um, if a lot of different Chinese entities end up getting listed, or if significant players, significant suppliers end up getting listed, you're going to see massive, uh, potentially massive disruptions um, into U.S.-bound supply. And um, especially if uh, the administration ends up listing 
um, you know, really significant materials providers or suppliers that are deeper in the supply chain. The, the, the larger an entity is and the deeper in the supply chain it is, the more consequential the listing becomes because you can think of all of the downstream, all of the different downstream channels that flow from a really major, you know, tier three, tier four material supplier in China. Every one of those supply lines is thereafter uh, uh, prohibited from entering, those goods are prohibited from entering the country. And any company that does not act to stop that is, is leaving themselves vulnerable to, to pretty significant enforcement in a scenario where the U.S. has already found the existence of forced labor. So I think that's what I'm really watching is, is how many entities are listed, how significant the listings are. And I think that that's what most companies, you know, need to be focused on first and foremost. So, um, uh, you know, this isn't just cotton, right? There's been a lot of talk around Xinjiang and solar. And my, um, uh, my expectation is that there are other sort of like weird third and fourth tier things that um, Xinjiang makes, which will be kind of uncovered. And, and, and I imagine that industries that aren't necessarily super on top of all of this are going to likely be surprised. At um sort at these um uh, at these interconnections when you when you start talking about these families, yeah, though I, I think your I think your question is is exactly on point. Um, the answer uh, this is not about cotton anymore. I would say absolutely uh, this this action UFLPA is not cotton specific or cotton focused. The cotton enforcement that is currently happening because of the WRO on cotton originating in Xinjiang that is completely independent. Of the UFLPA, it predated the UFLPA, and it will it will continue to exist and run on its own course. Um, there is not a direct connection between the cotton and the UFLPA enforcement, other than the fact that um, the UFLPA does call out a couple of specific commodities and industries, and specifically requires the U.S. government to identify other high priority items that are produced within the region. And then seeks to identify Chinese companies that are linked to those products. I, I could not begin to opine on what additional subject, uh, you know, uh, uh, individual products are going to be hit um, or other industries are going to be hit. Um, but we do know that the social programs involving particularly labor transfer of Uyghur workers throughout China, um, I mean, this is, this is a regular feature of the domestic labor economy. Migrant, domestic migrant workers is a huge feature of the Chinese labor market in general. And any state-sponsored movement of a batch of Uyghur workers pursuant to a poverty alleviation initiative um, would presumptively be a basis for listing and a basis yeah. upon which an entity could no longer exist in a U.S.-bound supply chain. So it's going to be very interesting to see how other industries um, react and respond as, as the enforcement builds. Having having spent a few dozen hours trying to play the oh what industry is potentially next game, um, my conclusion was that you actually do need millions of dollars to answer that question. And uh, but billion dollars, millions of dollars can answer that question. And um, uh, no one spent that money yet, but uh, it looks like Customs is about to. John, you know, there's been a bit of a political kerfuffle, or, or or at least Senator Rubio speaking out about he's how he's he in particular is worried that um the body administration may not be quite as as aggressive as some um as some would hope on using the the sort of powers and um, uh, um money allocated to do rigorous enforcement um how much wiggle room does the executive branch have 
in how they're going to play all this out? And what are the, you think, what do you think are the dynamics potentially impacting um, how the Biden administration is going to, um, uh, is going to uh, use this bill coming online? That's a great question. Um, I would say that um, I, I think that the WRO um, example is is maybe a good um, comparison point. So if you if you think back to just the Section 307 and how that is enforced, the forced labor import ban, and how that is enforced with WROs, there have only been a handful, a few dozen WROs that have been issued in this modern era of forced labor enforcement. Um, and what's interesting is that there's not a ton of overlap between the um, products, the commodities that have been that have been targeted by CBP, and and the lists that are produced by the U.S. government on an annual basis of goods known to be produced with forced labor. So the Department of Labor, the um, the Bureau of International Labor Affairs, ILAB. Produces a, produces a list every year of goods that are known to the U.S. government to be made with forced and child labor. If you look at the forced labor portion of that list that ILAB produces and the WROs, um, there are many, many fewer WROs that have been issued than against the full scope and scale of products that are known to the U.S. government as having been made with forced labor. Um, what, I, what, what conclusion I draw from that is that there is clearly discretion on the part of customs when it comes to the issuance of uh, of withhold release orders, um, you know, and that's a relatively low threshold, right? Reasonably, but not not conclusively establishes that product X from country Y is made with forced labor. They can issue a WRO. Obviously, they are not doing that in every instance. Um, I don't know w- what all factors go in. I'm just not privy to the decision-making process, and none of it is public. Um, so none of us have any idea what goes into the decision-making process. I would say we are at a similar um, lack of information, notwithstanding the efforts to sort of do public engagement. We don't know, uh, you know, having, you know, following the uh, public hearing and following the notice and comment period, we do not have any idea what sort of process is going to be created around the listing mechanism um, under the UFLPA. Um, we do know that the statute requires that the the, um, the 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 group that is responsible for preparing those lists that it is required to cooperate with um, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and um, in terms of considering allegations and then and, and undertaking the listing process. That is really significant to me because um, NGOs and and researchers, academic researchers, have shown both the ambition and the ability to undertake research of Chinese entities and produce information uh, that would link an entity to to one of the social programs of concern. And there have been a number of reports that have been issued. And every time uh, another report is issued, it, it comes with sort of dramatic effect. Tons of press, you know, will pick it up. Um, a lot of that, a lot of that reporting was in fact deeply influential, even in the creation of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act in the first place. And so what the UFLPA basically does is it creates sort of a government window where allegations like that are going to be able to be filed um, and the, the task force is going to take it up. There certainly is, is, is a space for, the, for this task force to, um, to exercise discretion. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what to make of the uh, sort of repeated ongoing expressed concerns that the administration is not taking this seriously. Uh, I, I just can't, I can't say, but I will say that there is scope for the exercise of discretion and it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. 
No, it, it's been um, uh, sort of watching it have to fall to sort of NGOs and academics that seem to start the ball rolling. And you see a number of WROs where it's kind of clear that they're actually taking that, that sort of they're following the lead of these outside researchers, um, um, you know, potentially because of resource constraints. Maybe that's public pressure to do something once you have this, um, you know, big stories and, 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 and reporting around uh, allegations of forced labor. But um, now there's not going to be that, you know, excuse of like we of this um, uh, of this effort not being properly resourced. There's no question about the about the the closeness of that relationship that you described. The Commissioner of Customs actually testified before Congress that non-governmental organizations are the, in his words, the eyes and ears of CBP when it comes to forced labor allegations, which, um, which is wild. That's <laughs> that's a wild thing to say. It is a. It, I thought it was a wild thing to say. I agree with that. Um, but so there's no there's no question about the 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 affinity and the partnership that exists there, um, and I I think what makes it particularly wild is the fact that it's not a process that is um, that has any transparency to it, right? We don't know the types of allegations that are filed unless um, a, you know a private third party entity that filed an allegation wants to go ahead and make that public. We don't know what the deliberative process is like. We don't know what the decision-making process is like. We don't know what factors are considered significant or insignificant. We don't know whether there are any sorts of policies around not you know, imposing WROs in certain instances or, or what would, would tip the needle in other instances. And my concern is that, that the listing process under the UFLPA could very similarly be marked by, by a similar degree of opacity. Um, Hopefully not. Hopefully there will be a transparent process whereby it will be evident um, what allegations are have been made, what sort of factors have been deemed significant, um, and the basis upon which these determinations are being made, as well as ideally an opportunity for those decisions to be reviewed. Look, this this whole this whole apparatus it either is subject to the rule of law or it is not, and if it is not, then it is subject to the rule of accusation and insinuation. And um, and that's just not really any way to, to, to run an effective form of trade regulation. You know, the issues are very serious. The allegations are incredibly serious and deeply concerning. And the situation I think is certainly serious enough to warrant taking the allegations seriously and being willing to be um, you know, subordinated to the facts as they are demonstrable. You know, any any desire to sort of push forward with the enforcement process without that sort of transparency and and willingness to to lay out the basis of determinations. Um, I think it does not bode well for the continued sort of rules-based trading system that we are uh, that we've grown accustomed to. You know, comparing the sort of because obviously there's going to be sources and methods, there'll be some secret stuff that goes on and not, you know, you can't you can't be there are limits to what you can expect, but maybe comparing sort of what level of transparency you get with these OFAC sanctions designations, um, what is what has Treasury shown it's been able to do in that regard? I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, have to punt a little bit on that because it's outside the scope of my of my primary practice area, um, but I would say that at a minimum, what could be created would be a mechanism whereby. Uh, there's at least a notice of of proposed determination 
and an opportunity to consider contrary information. And then once a decision has been made, some sort of mechanism for reviewing the determination subsequently, deciding whether the facts, you know, continue to warrant the imposition of uh, of the of the of the consequence, whether it's listing or the imposition or issuance of a WRO. Those seem to me to be very low, low stakes kinds of protections that could be put in place. In other words, we're proposing to take this action. We're proposing to list this entity. We're willing to consider alternative points of view. Um, and and then a, a mechanism for review and, and sort of continuing to clean up. And I would just comment that the, you know, there is no mechanism for ongoing sort of upkeep of the of the existence of WROs that have been issued under Section 307. The oldest WRO was issued in the 1950s, and it's still in effect. Um, it, it it applies to furniture that is made by a particular penitentiary in Mexico. Um, you know, who knows whether this this you know <laughs> this penitentiary even exists anymore? But there's no mechanism for sort of going through even doing routine maintenance and cleanup of the list, um, let alone some sort of systematic review and, you know, sunsetting or anything of that nature. So these are these are what I consider sort of very basic rule of law type um, protections that if you're going to have, a, it, it, look, if forced labor enforcement is just a sleepy corner of the law where, you know, 15 WROs are issued against 15 individual tiny, you know, XYZ corporation, mom and pop companies in in china and and a few others in latin america or something like I, I guess it doesn't matter all that much whether you've got really good rigorous protections and controls in place um if it's going to be you know funded to the scale and scope of all u.s sanctions enforcement or a significant percentage of all u.s sanctions enforcement if there really are going to be you know hundreds or thousands of chinese entities listed like it needs to have some basic sort of due process type rule of law protections that are built in and baked in. And the law did not design that. The law sort of gives space to the Forced Labor Enforcement Task Force as the arm of the U.S. government responsible for developing the strategy and designing and implementing the enforcement. Um, it really is up to that task force to decide whether or not um, to create those types of mechanisms. And it'll be very interesting to see whether they're responsive to those those types of asks. John, talking about the sort of dynamics of firms pushing, you know, trying to trying to push back and get themselves back in the um, uh, in the good graces of 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 customs. You know, obviously a problem is that a you can't really go to China nowadays, and b even if you could, uh, inspecting Xinjiang adjacent uh, supply chains is not something that the Chinese government is particularly excited to let. Um, uh, uh, supply chain verif verifiers do so. What what is the kind of playbook um, for firms nowadays to um, uh, um, to to make the case that they um, uh, that they're not like the other guy? That is a great and extremely difficult question, and I think that what what would be very helpful to see, and before you can sort of opine on that, is what sort of mechanisms are created, particularly for the review and reconsideration. Or revisiting of a listing determination. I do think that under any scenario, it is going to be exponentially easier to list than it is to delist. And um, I think for that reason that it is it is very likely going to be the case that the, the listing mechanism becomes the most 
influential and far-reaching portion of the UFLPA legacy, um, it is definitely possible that that list could simply grow and grow. And you're right. I don't think that there is an obvious set of factual um, information that could be submitted that would necessarily result in a delisting um, after the listing has happened. You know, regardless of the of the sort of nitty gritty on this, uh, watching the U.S. government take a more serious approach to um, forced labor is, I think, something to be applauded. And um, there most surely will be uh, growing pains uh, as um, as a field of regulation, which like kind of didn't really exist even before five years ago, all of a sudden is um, is in its uh, is in its uh, sort of like birth pangs. So. Uh, I just wanted to invite any of your listeners that might be um, interested in this topic. Um, I do send out a newsletter on the state of play of CBP's enforcement of the forced labor import ban. So to the extent that anyone is interested in receiving updates on uh, on how that is evolving, they should feel free to reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, John Foote, F-O-O-T-E, and I'd be happy to add them to the distribution. As this is the only law um, uh, globally that is being currently enforced uh, as a cross-border restriction on goods produced with forced labor. Um, I think that what customs does and doesn't do is, um, is really interesting and, and highly instructive. So um, to the extent any of your audience feels the same way, they should feel free to reach out. Be happy to add them to the newsletter. So um, John, looking forward to, to staying in touch and, and keeping following how this, uh, how this space evolves. Thank you for having me. Always great to speak with you, George. Aziz başını yat eyleb Ela Nurhan mazaler geçirah yaksın Shall we?